happy. Right, everything's happy. Chase is going to Linus's house today, and that makes him happy. Right? And I said that I'm going to Linus's house today, and that makes me happy. Linus, of course, makes me happy because he's named after the second pope. So he's got another brother named... Who? No. He's got a brother named Leo, who is another pope. And I said, if you just had a Gregory, you'd have all the church greats. Um, but Linus, you know, is the second pope. So I always say, hey, you're named after a pope. And he looks at me kind of funny because I don't think they're Lutheran. I really don't think they're Catholic. Um, but nice family. Anyways, so it was happy. And I said, what do you do when you're happy? What makes you happy? Well, the, you know, the overwhelming answer was, what makes kids happy? If you've got a child, what will make them happy? No, well, you're close. But, uh, I mean, when they really mean it, when they're not just playing you for a fool, what makes them happy? Hugs. Yes, if you've got a kid and you want to make them happy, you say, come give me a hug, right? And so I brought Emma up because I don't hug other kids, usually. I brought Emma up and I gave her a big old hug. And I said, now, what do you notice about a hug? How are my hands? Well, your hands are out. So we have the big crucifix. Jesus' hands are out. Guess what? He's about to give you a big hug. And so then we took the smiley face and the crucifix. So when you see the crucifix, it should make you happy. Crucifix, happy. Crucifix, happy. No, but, you, but kids should learn not to be afraid of it. They should learn that that's something they should flee toward. So, and an empty cross should make you sad. Exactly. If we can just train them up at a young age to despise an empty cross, we'd be just fine. Um, so anyway, so that was fun. But, you know, I have really nothing prepared. So Psalm 66 is good. Um, you know, let me, let me ask you this. I, I fear that we are, this always happens. Oh, by the way, this is great. Um, N.T. Wright, well, I, yeah, N.T. Wright, yes, he is. And guess where he was almost coming for dinner? My house. Now, he can't make it uh, for a multitude of reasons, but uh, wrote me a very nice email back and said, uh, I would love to come. I told him s sort of who all would be there, some people from the conference, and said, we'd love to have you come as well. Um, and of course, he's jam-packed while he's here. He is He's the keynote guy. I mean, the whole conference, if you don't know this, you're having a conference at Wheaton College. The conference is an examination of all of N.T. Wright's work. So basically, he gives two one-and-a-half-hour lectures each night and the rest of the day is spent giving papers about his work. So it's all about him. So, you know, he's all booked up. But you get, And I got an email back from him probably within 90 minutes of when I sent it. Now, when the Bishop of Durham writes you back within 90 minutes, that's a pretty good deal. Um, so, and Lauren Winner, in fact, I just, well, that's another email story. We'll talk about that some other time. But N.T. Wright, I don't know what I was talking about. I was trying to kill time. Uh, oh, I know what I was going to say. As, uh, as with uh, Simply Christian, you know, you get to a point where you begin to talk about the same things over and over again, so we kind of want to be fresh. I fear that um, we've spent a lot of time talking about our past and about all the troubles, and we've acknowledged that. I think hopefully you noticed in the sermon for last week a change in direction. We may talk about the past because that's important at times. It helps you learn. But there comes a point where talking about the past just brings it to life again. So we need to go forward, and we want to try to do that with the Psalms as well. Uh, but the problem is most of David's life is spent um, in a situation not unlike our past 18 months. So it's hard to find a whole lot of Psalms where he looks forward. He's always looking back. So what I want to do is 
you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I also want to give you a chance, if you've got some sort of burning questions, primarily about the Psalms, but really about anything. If you've got some burning questions, we've talked about a lot of very deep stuff. We've talked about sin and reconciliation and moving forward. We've also talked about what it means to be a Lutheran and what the Eucharist is. Are there any questions to get started that we might be able to address to move us forward? Yeah. Easter Monday? It is a bank holiday. <laughs> um, there's, there's no, uh, there's no, well, here's how it works. What's the most important number in the scriptures? If you were picking numbers, what would be the, besides 10%, what would be the most important number in the scripture? <laughs> eight is the most important number, yeah. So when the Lord's having himself an eight, you know something big is going on. Um, for that reason, the scriptures are always read in light of the eights. Now, you remember um, at creation, how many days are there in creation? I'm going to get to your question in just a second, but I want to kill about 10 minutes as I lead up to it, okay? <laughs> so the rest of you who don't care, just sort of shut off at this point, and then when I get to the answer, I'll let you all know. So there are seven days of creation, and you've all seen this, I'm sure. Um, he creates all these days, and what does he create on the sixth day? Man, okay? He creates man. Now, what's, what's a bad number today? If you were picking bad numbers, what would it be? Six, yeah, or, or of course, you know, sort of uh, six on steroids would be 666. You don't want sixes. Now, why is six a bad number? Because the guy who was created on the sixth day, or the man and woman, ultimately fell into sin, right? So that's a demonic number. That's the devil's number. The devil had his way with creation on the sixes, okay? Now, if you're a Jew, what day do you have your Sabbath? What day do you have your seventh day, your rest day? Saturday, right? So for Christians, we worship on Sunday. But if you're a Jew, this is the day the Lord rests. This is your Sabbath. Why is it your Sabbath? Because that's the day God rested, okay? So that's a good reason. Now, um, if Saturday is the Sabbath, what day is the sixth day? This is Saturday. What's the sixth? Friday, good. Now, think back to think back to the triduum, the great three days. Holy Thursday, Good Friday. So this is the day Jesus died. Why did Jesus die on that day? Yeah, to reverse the curse, which is why, you remember in the text, I think from Matthew, it says he dies in the place of the skull, one skull. Who did the church fathers always believe was buried under the hill of Golgotha? Adam. Okay, Adam. Jesus dies on Friday, he's buried, he takes his Sabbath rest on Saturday, and then he rises from the dead, as it says, on what day? Sunday, and it says in the text, the first day of the week. The church has always said that's not the first day, that's the eighth day. You remember at Noah, with Noah, he took creation and destroyed it and basically started fresh. He saved, contrary to Noah's remarkable journey, although I loved it, when you have 32 people on the ark to end the show, it's not accurate. How many? I know they got to get all the kids on the ark so all their parents can take pictures, but how many were saved on the ark? Eight. So he starts fresh there. But with Jesus, he doesn't destroy creation. What does he do? He takes the old creation and makes it new. Okay? So eights are very important numbers, and uh, Easter Sunday is the eighth day. 
It's the eighth day. Now, why Easter Monday? Whenever you have a big feast, you have what's called afterwards the octave. Octave meaning the eight days. So after Christmas, you have the octave of Christmas. After Epiphany, you have the octave of Epiphany. After Easter, you have the octave of Easter. So for the eight days after the great feast, you keep the celebration alive. So for instance, um, we wear gold vestments. This is how you kind of know. We wear gold vestments on all the high feasts. Christmas, Easter, Epiphany usually. Um, but on those high feasts, we wear gold. Now if you come to the morning Eucharist the week after, guess what color we'll still have on? Gold, because it's still the octave. You wouldn't go to white, you wouldn't go to green, you wouldn't go to, you'd keep the color of the feast day for eight days. In the early church, you always spent the first eight days uh, in celebration. So for instance, if you were a catechumen in the early church and you were baptized at the Easter vigil, you'd spend your next eight days in celebration with the church family. So why is Easter Monday important? The only significance is it falls within the octave. It's a continuation of Easter. Why is it, but is there something else that falls on that day? Not usually. And the reason the Easter Vigil is the big sur How many of you have come to the Easter Vigil before? That's about what I expected. I would encourage you all to come this year because we're going to do something brand new, which is we're going to receive all of our catechumens as new members at the Easter Vigil, which is historically when the church did it. Um, they would baptize people and receive them as members of the church, the Catholic church, the big church. Uh, and we always do it, you know, third Sunday after Easter, or whenever you can find time. We've made it a point this year to line it up with feast day. So at the Easter vigil, we'll have 42 new members, plus their kids, um, all received as new members that night. In the ancient world, the reason the vigil is so important is, when did the new day start? If you were looking for Sunday morning, when did it technically start? Yeah, not even six, uh, no time, when the sun goes down, when the sun goes down. So we always think of it as the new day is when the sun comes up. Ah, it's 6 a.m., the sun's up a bit earlier now. i got to get up, it's a new day. In the ancient world, as soon as the sun went down, it was the next day. Which is why you don't ever have an Easter vigil Saturday night if the sun's still up. So we actually look at the Farmer's Almanac and say, what time does the sun go down this year? You don't want to have a service starting before that. But once the sun goes down on Saturday night, Holy Saturday, it's Easter morning. And so when uh, it says the women went to the tomb and Peter and John ran to the tomb, it even says sort of early in the morning, in the darkness, basically late Saturday night, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, they ran to the tomb and did all these things. So the Easter vigil is the big service. That's a very long answer to your question, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if you go to England, I mean, I'm a student at St. Andrews, the terms are still named after the feast days in the church, right? So, you know, uh, uh, Whitsuntide, it's sort of the, the Epiphany Tide, and you have all these different terms which are named after feasts in the church. There's still sort of churchly overtones, at least in, at least in form and function. Anything else? Yes. Yes. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, were you, how did, did, did you have a, did you have a camera at my Easter celebration last year? <laughs> Don and Joyce. <laughs> well, you're right. No, you did, you, I mean, 
every good pagan who has some Catholic connection fasts a bit during Lent, you know. Um, but yeah, you go all out on Easter Sunday, and yes, I don't. I would never know what it was like to have too much to drink on Easter Sunday, but I could imagine. I could sort of. <laughs> all you eating fish on Fridays? Raise your hand if you eat fish. That, good job, Karen. That a girl? Good. Keep the feast or fast or whatever, uh, and the feast will be here soon enough. Anything else? Yeah, I think I, basically what they said was, uh, you know, give up something that you kind of like. And it used to be if you're an old Catholic or if you grew up Catholic, um, you didn't eat you didn't eat meat any Friday throughout the year. And then it's sort of you know it's sort of laxed down to you don't eat meat during Lent on Fridays. Um, yeah, exactly. Because what's I mean, if you if you lived in a fishing village, what's cheaper to kill a cow or to catch a couple fish? Probably catch a couple fish. And yeah, you're right. Then you would give the money to help someone else. Um, you know, you can give up anything you want. You can give up nothing. I kind of like the discipline of it, not because you want to suffer. You can never suffer as much as Jesus, but because then when you decide not to have meat, where your thought where do your thoughts go? At least for me, it goes to the reason I'm doing it, which is in preparation for the Paschal Mysteries, preparation for Easter. I mean, I, I, and, and it, would be a, I, it would be a test. I wonder, you know, common fast during Lent for Western Christians, so that's us, is every day a normal breakfast, a very, very light lunch, like a, lo- a piece of bread or bread and some cheese. Pick your thing. And then a normal-sized dinner, but really nothing after dinner. Like you wouldn't have a big dessert or anything like that. It's amazing the money you can save when you eat that way. I wonder what it would look like if we as a church said, we're, go- we're going to observe that fast, and the money we save will give to the poor. I mean, I was driving in this morning. I drive by pads now every day because the bridge is out. And every morning I see the woman you saw with her kid. Remember upstairs? You said she's got a young child. Every morning, out pushing her kid in a stroller, um, yesterday she had the kid completely covered up because it was, it was brisk, it was cold. This morning she's walking with the kid. Now this kid's probably two years old and lives in a homeless shelter. No child should be raised that way. But the problem is, you know, there's not enough money to go around. There is, but people aren't always willing to give it. So I wonder what would happen if we said, hey, you know, as a women's Bible study, these 30 or 40 people are all going to you could probably save 10 or $15 a day for your 40 days of Lent. We're all going to give $400 to this and see what happens. That would be a different way of observing the fast. So, but yeah, that's the reason. What else? Yeah. Go right ahead. Ask it. We'll see what happens. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Good. Uh First, well, first thing for, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll give you some more. I don't think it's a matter of saying that their hierarchy is wrong. It's a matter of saying um, their overall interpretation is wrong. Now, it wouldn't, that obviously comes from the hierarchy. But it's not so much that their structure is wrong, their people are wrong. It means that their classic interpretation of scripture is wrong. Um, on the other hand, well, uh, Lutherans, in some sense, are no different because you know, as a Lutheran, you always read the Bible through what? Through the lens of what? Not your pastors. More than Christ, if you're if you're a Lutheran, you read the you read the scriptures through the lens of the Lutheran confessions, right? 
Um, so you have your own, I mean, when Lutherans say we don't believe in tradition, that's nonsense. Because since 1580, we've had a book that we all subscribe to and say we read the scriptures through these. You do have tradition. In fact, uh, if you read outside of the confessions, they call you a heretic, which means actually those confessions are on the same level of scripture in some sense. Uh, now, I think it's a bit different for you for this reason. You and your husband were involved in the type of mission where you were trying to get the Bible you were just trying to get the Bible to people. We don't necessarily have that problem because most people here can read the scriptures. You were in a, a very helpful thing, which is we just got to get the Bible out to people. Um, but as you know, if you're trained in something, you read, you, know, you read the directions differently than if you're not. If I buy a Dell computer, I will read the directions differently than the um, you know, geek squad who comes out to my house to set it up because they've been trained in that. So partly it's a deference to people who have spent their time reading the instructions. Now, can they read them incorrectly? Yeah, they can. And that's where uh, Paul praises the noble Bereans. Why does he praise them? Not because they were always saying to Paul, you're wrong, but because they always said, explain this to us. And they made, he, they made Paul give an account for what he was saying. That's actually not wrong. It's when, here's what normally happens. People don't normally say, can you explain that? People normally say, you're wrong. <laughs> that's not what the Bereans did. That's a very different thing. So that's living under authority. Can you explain this to me? And if the guy can't explain it, then there's reason to go and talk to someone who can explain it. But it's very different to just say, authority is bad, and I don't trust you, and I've got my own interpretation. Yeah. Uh, that's a very difficult thing, because she will defer almost more fervently than a Lutheran will to her own authority, right? Which is why, and this is the difficulty, dealing with a Jehovah's Witness is not like dealing with a Baptist. I don't know if we'd go to the point of saying that being a Jehovah's Witness, that that's a non-Christian religion, but the difficulty is it has some aspects of a classic cult in this sense. There's control of the person. Right? And control is always by force and force is by the law. And so when you see that, like not letting you open your email or not letting you read the text, that's a sense of control that's actually not found in the scriptures. There's never a point where Jesus says, don't, do, don't read that. What Jesus says is, I'm in charge, come under my care. Um, and that's not the same, it works by force, not as a gift. And that's your classic, you know, when you drink the Kool-Aid, it's because the guy says, drink the Kool-Aid. So that's the difficulty. Um, so really what you can do is it's not actually helpful necessarily to go back and forth, counterpoint, point, counterpoint. The more fruitful thing is to pray that they can come free of, uh, in some sense, the addiction to that power, to that authority, and see what real authority is. That's, that's, that's almost like slavery. It's not gospel authority. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think you hit on a good point, which is we have to always look at, first and foremost, what are the blessings of certain things? So the natural impulse is to say they're wrong for these reasons. Rephrase the question and say, where do they get it right? And I would think one of the areas they get, in fact, I've visited Jehovah's Witness halls and things like that. One place they get it right is in uh, their way of life. And so partly what we lack is a way of life. We get all the good theology, but we don't embody it. And I think part of, part of what draws people back to the fullness of the church is to see they're not going to be drawn by you saying or me saying, 
well, Jesus is the Son of God, and here are the 15 proof texts. They're going to be drawn back when you live a life equal to or better than they live, and they say, what does she have that I don't have? And then you can sort of open up the richness of all the theology that you have. But that's a very different shift than even 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Betty, don't worry. You'd make the cut. You'd be just fine. I'm still, I'm still confused. I think you are going out on a date later today, Betty. You were all decked out today. Those were vodka tonics I think I talked about, not beer. I know. Well, we'll I'll come over and make a shut-in call again, and we'll see what happens. We'll see if you pour me an old, a big cold one. Yeah, right. I just expect you to be at the piano. Didn't you play songs for me last time? We sang along. We sang some hymns, you and me. Yeah. Getting old. As the older I get, Betty, the younger you get. Okay. All right. Uh, I did. I think I did kiss the Blarney Stone. Anything else? Uh, let's go here and we'll go here. Is that okay? Go ahead. Yeah. Aramaic. Aramaic. Aramaic, yeah. Yeah, you know in the scriptures, obviously they're written in Greek, the New Testament. Um, but Jesus Jesus likely spoke Aramaic. In fact, there's sometimes in the text, in your English text, where, he said, where it says, he said to them in Aramaic, whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, where, where he's at, that was, that was certainly um, the up-and-coming language at that point. And now, obviously, other things come into play, but for the most part, he probably spoke Aramaic most, I mean, all of his life. Uh, well, Latin, mm-hmm. um, Hebrew, Aramaic, some Greek. I mean, you start to get a little Greek influence. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, what were the languages in which they wrote on the top of his cross, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews? Aramaic? Latin and Greek, right? So that everybody who walked by could see it and, and understand it, right? Yeah, and, and again, it, I mean, it's hard not living there and not, not kind of being in that context, who spoke what, but those were certainly some of the prominent languages. Yeah. You're welcome. There you go. Right, right, yep. Yeah, all that good stuff, yeah, right? Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, the difference is, here's what happens. When people put themselves under the control, control's a bad word, under the authority of their pastor, what they've said is, um, I'm going to step back and let someone else give account for me. Now, you can either see that as very troublesome or very comforting. I think more and more, people's lives are so chaotic and out of control that to have one place where they can put themselves under someone else and not have to give an account is actually a comforting thing. So at the, at the last day, you know, you'll stand up and say, I was a faithful wife and I was a faithful mother, and St. Peter will say, you're exactly right, come on in. I'll stand up and they'll say, how about all those people you cared for? And he'll go one by one. And how about all those people that left? That's the scary thing. How about all those people who took the Eucharist to probably shouldn't have been there because they were unrepentant. And maybe you knew about it. So I have to give an account for all of those people. And, and it's a matter for me of life or death. For you, obviously if you're a bad mother or a bad spouse, that is a matter of life and death. But if you get that all squared away, I give account for you, you give account for yourself and your family. Um, and as, as you say at your ordination, even unto death itself, you promise you'll care for these people. 
So yeah, that's exactly right. You lose control, but actually in losing control, you gain something, which is comfort, security, certainty, and assurance. So you can either have it as a gift or as a burden, but I would think in today's world, you probably want that as a gift. <laughs> you okay? That back table always makes me a little nervous. Where do you guys want to go next, the young people in the back? And you too, Betty. Where do you guys want to go next? <laughs> go ahead. This day is the day that has no end. Fancy word for that is eschatological. Eschaton, you know, is the end times. So when Jesus rises from the dead, um, that day of resurrection has no end. It is always the resurrection. You never technically, yeah, you go through the week and you have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but in your spiritual life, it's always Sunday. It's always the resurrection. So that's why in the scriptures, there are two different kinds of time. There is chronos, like your watch. That's what you live on, chronos. And there's kairos, which is time that can't be measured. It's eternal. It's eschatological. Your eighth day is kairos, not chronos. You bring your kids to school in chronos time. Better get there because they lock the preschool doors now. That's Kronos time. So it's always the eighth day. That's why, um, you know, this is why you all got to come to the Easter Vigil. I mean, the Easter Vigil, it, it, it is like one, I mean, it, for those of you who want to chancel drama, that's the Easter Vigil. The Easter Vigil reenacts and rehearses the entire Paschal mystery. So the pastor stands and says, you know, uh, this is the night from whence all knights receive their light. This is the night when, you know, our fathers were led out of Egypt. This is the night when they received manna in the wilderness. This is the night when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And it says then, the beginning of a new creation begins tonight. So that means it's the eighth day and it never ends. You, you can't go back now. It's a new creation leading back to Eden. I mean, the Easter Vigil is, it gives me like the chills just thinking about it. That is the service of the year. It's everything. It's very funny, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say we always get it right, but let me give you an example, okay? Um, we started doing Tizay probably two years ago. In, I mean, after the order of Tizay, real Tizay. You can Americanize Tizay, which means you sing, you know, Shine Jesus Shine at Tizay. You can sing Shine Jesus Shine, but that's not a Tizay song. So, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> thank you very much. We know where you stand. Uh, but we try to be faithful to Tizay. Probably twice a month, we have churches come in and say, guess what, we just started a Tizay service, and we're going to be faithful to Tizay, because that's what people want. We're like, yeah, we know. will you post this sign for us? We're like, oh, we have our own Tizay service. Or I'll give you another example. They just had a whole thing in Christianity today about a church, uh, the United Methodist Church just put out a new book of catechesis, how they're going to train their new members. Guess how long the course, la course lasts? 30 weeks. Okay? Guess how, guess how their catechumenate is structured. Guess what they give people? They give people primarily, not only instruction in theology, but they give them all a booklet that has quotes from poets, songwriters, artists, the Bible, theologians, all throughout as they say, so we can show that we're in, we're in the living stream of the church. For 20 centuries, we're going to give you this material, and you can begin to read that. What does that sound like? Margin comments, right? This is the Methodist Church. 
Then we give all of our new members, we say, write these down. We're going to give you a glossary of terms. What's sanctification? What's grace? Five-word answers. There's a church out in Baltimore that's put together a 92-page book of definitions with Bible verses and one- to two-word answers. What does that tell you? I mean, that's like, that's the way the church is going. Um, probably, it probably did come out of Valpo. Probably very well did. Kirby, when you were at Valpo, did they have an Easter vigil service? No? When was Bepler there? Okay. Now, like when Abby was there, they did have a vigil, and it started, if you've been to Valpo, it started down by the font, the big font, and then, you know, you wind your way up the stairs, which is really death to resurrection. Um, but, yeah, it's all over the place now. I mean, even churches that aren't liturgical are doing it. Exactly. Yeah. You all okay? Well, I'm just trying to debate. Uh, no, I'm going to tell you the truth. The question I'm thinking of is, is it more important to have incense or to have Mary there? That's what I'm thinking. Okay. We could, like, live stream it back to your house. Yeah, we do usually have incense. No, we do usually... We do usually have incense just because, you know, we do it, if we have 52 weeks and four services a weekend, that's 200 plus all the, we have probably have 250 services a, a year. We have incense on weekends probably five times a year, and this is one time we do have it. I know, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, the day when, when the church is really the church, the way that Christ intends it to be, is primarily at the Easter Vigil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. It's, if you want, I mean, it's all candlelight. In fact, we used to, and it, it had an effect, but we used to, you know, there are basically three parts of the service. There's a service of readings, the service of baptism, and then the service of the Eucharist. We used to, after the service of baptism, go back and change into Eucharistic vestments, and then they'd like slam the lights up, and oh, it's Easter, and, but it always had a very, it felt artificial. So last year we said, you know, don't turn the lights on. And we just kept it candlelight the whole time. But, you know, candles come back out to the altar so there's suddenly a bit more light. It was unbelievably gorgeous. And that's what, that's what every Christian around the world is supposed to be doing that night. That's your night. And that's Israel's night. So, all right, Psalm 66, you want to give it a go? We should at least read it. Kirby wasn't here when I said that her husband was supposed to teach but didn't have anything to say. And I said I'd take it, but I have nothing to say either. <laughs> I don't even have an outline to give you to take back and show for. It has been a long week. I, get, I don't know if it's a time change. Yeah, I don't know if it's a time change or the meetings or both, but I am like, one, Abby said, man, you're staying up late, 9 o'clock, 9.30. That's late for me. And getting up late. I mean, I was it's 6.15 and I was still in bed, but... Whatever. Um, that's why I loved living in Fort Wayne. There was no time change. Did you know that? For a long time. Now, they do now. But for a long time, Fort Wayne didn't change time. So you're always. But it was bad because Fort Wayne is right on the Ohio border in some sense. And they would play Ohio sport teams. And they'd be an hour different. So the game would start at 4 o'clock. Well, that would start at 3 o'clock Fort Wayne time. So they had to get out of school early. And it was a big mess. Anyway, Psalm 66. And this is part of the reason we want to talk about Easter is this is really the Easter psalm. This was... Um, on Easter morning in most of the church, uh, at least the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, these four, first four verses are the opening versicles to the Feast of the Resurrection. 
In fact, um, in some Greek translations of the Old Testament, yours probably says to the choir master, a song, a psalm, right? Oftentimes it'll add a song, a psalm, dash of the resurrection. So this is all about the Paschal mystery. And Paschal, of course, means you know the Passover. It's all about the Passover mystery. So, Psalm 66, shout for joy to God all the earth. That means every last person. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. How awesome are your works. Now, if you're thinking Passover, what are his works? What does he do at Passover? Yeah, good. So he, he takes you out of Egypt. He puts blood on the door frames. The angel of death passes over. Um, they have bitter herbs and wine. Then, of course, Jesus celebrates the Passover and makes it his body and blood. A great, great quote from Augustine that will run on Monday, Thursday, which says, Jesus Christ held himself in his own hands at the Last Supper. Isn't that great? He celebrates the Eucharist, and what does he give out? His own body and blood. He holds himself in his hands. Okay? So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you, and they sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Man there, of course, is one man, Adam, and then Jesus. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net like fish. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. What's that place? Where's he brought them? The promised land. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I'll do what I said I would do. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Isn't that great? So what's the progression then? What happens between you know, verses 1 to 4 and 5 through uh, 12 and then 13 through 20? What's the progression? Yeah, keep going. Good. Very good. You're not are you even reading back there or are you just listening? Wow. That's great. So the world Israel which is church and then you. Okay? So that's how the Lord works. He starts off with the world he works down to the church, and ultimately, he has his way with you. Now, this is interesting because once, if this is the way the Lord works, then how does the psalmist work? Once the Lord's gone world, Israel, him, how does he go? Isn't that fascinating? So he says, 
You've done this to the world. You've saved Israel. You saved me. Now, how does it end? How does the psalm end? Yeah, verse 13. I will come into your house. I will perform my vows. I will offer burnt offerings. I will make an offering. Now, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. That's Israel, right? The church. And ultimately then, his voice goes back out into the entire world. See how this works? The Lord works down to the psalmist, and the psalmist works out to the world. This is not unlike the post-communion collect, which says, strengthen us in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another. Or as the Latin mass ends, ete missa est, go the mission. What's the mission? The Lord has come to the world in Mary's womb, to the church at the Eucharist, to you with body and blood. Now you go to the church and back out to the world. See how this works? I mean, he's always sending you out to do something more. He's always sending you out on the mission. So you can't stop. This is not being a Christian to just stop here. It's just me and Jesus. If you ever hear somebody say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, that doesn't mean they're wrong, but you should at least be wary of that. It's not about you and Jesus. You can't also say, I'm just concerned about my church. If you're a Christian, you're concerned about the entire world. So you shouldn't drive past pads in the morning and not, you know, uh, see a woman with her two-year-old son and say, gosh, that's upside down. You just can't do that. Because if you do, you might be stuck here, or heaven forbid, you might be stuck here. Okay? And we don't have to give you examples. I mean, you've seen this all, you've seen this take place. You've talked to people. It's all about me. It's all about the church. I mean, the, the most heretical thing you can say here, and I said it in my sermon on Sunday, is, uh, you know, heaven forbid you do this to save your church. Guess what? It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. Okay? So that's how it works. And you even see um, in uh, First or Second Chronicles, I can never remember. Those books get all bollocked up. But there's this progression from um, the ends of the earth to Judea, uh, Samaria, sorry, Judea and Jerusalem. And you remember in Acts then, uh, the apostle says, the apostle, or, or Luke says in Acts, uh, go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So in, in the Old Testament, everything comes to its source and center in Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? The cross. And then in Acts, once Jesus is risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, he says, take this message from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it all comes to Jerusalem, and it all goes out to Jerusalem. It all comes to you. It all goes out from you. Make sense? Is this getting boring? I'm enjoying it. But who wouldn't like to hear themselves talk? Really? Come on. If only Abby knew how much I could talk. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. Ah. Uh, Okay. All right. Anything else? You all okay? What else do you hear in the psalm? Anything that jumps out at you? We could do another one. We're going so quickly. Okay. Tell me how you think that means you're stuck in your church. I'm not pressing. I'm just curious. Um, in Israel, right. Um, let's see. I want to say three things, and I don't want to forget them. Um, 
Okay. First thing, it's, um, it's very difficult to think about other people, particularly those in the world, when you don't have any time. Uh, one thing that was, that was said last night at the parent meeting, and by the way, the parent meeting was, was very good. Um, one thing that was said, which was interesting, and I, I thought about it for a while, and I think they're partially right, and I think partially they could improve their answer. Part of the reason they want to do so many things in the school sort of after hours is so that families can be together again. So what happens is families scatter after school. You take your kid to Glen Ellen, you take your kid to Wheaton, you take your kid to tennis, you take your kid here. If you can locate those activities at St. John's, suddenly you're all back together again. That's good, but it doesn't go all the way because what you actually need is maybe not to be involved in all those things, right? Because if you bring your, if you bring your, I mean, if you're just bringing your kid to chess, it's good because you're with your kid and you're with other family members, but guess what? Your kid is still moving chess pieces across the board. I'm not saying don't play chess. What I'm saying is we need to reprioritize and rethink our own lives to find more time. Because when you have more time with your family, you might actually have more time to think about other people. Not you, but me too. Um, you know, going to meetings till midnight three days in a week is just not fair to anybody. Not fair to me, not fair to my kids, and frankly, it's not fair to the rest of the world who probably could use our help. First thing, so you need more time. Um, so the first thing you can do is rethink your own life. Talk to your husband, figure out what you can give up, what you can't give up, and real honestly, just how you can do things differently in the normal course of a day. Like eating dinner in front of the TV with your family probably isn't the best use of your time. I don't know if you do that, but I know my mother-in-law was stunned when she came out a couple weeks ago and Emma said, Daddy, are we going to eat in front of the TV? And she looked at me like, what kind of parent are you? And I wanted to say, you know, I got like nine minutes to eat with Emma, so if we're going to have a slice of pizza, we'll do it in front of the TV. The problem is now like uh, the, you know, Michael Scott from The Office. You've seen The Office. So he was on, it was on a commercial, and she goes, that's Michael from The Office. I'm like, oh, man, this is not good. <laughs> Holly's looking at me like, that's our goddaughter. I know. <laughs> Forgive me. So um, partly I need, I'm just as guilty as everybody else. And you find that sitting at table with people is a much more enjoyable experience, even if you think you'd rather be watching the basketball game. Because that's the way the Lord works. What does Jesus do with people? He sits at table and eats with them. So find more time. The other thing is, um, let me go to the third one first. If you want to know what to do, ask your pastor. This is, sort of the, this is one of the common mistakes that people often make. They either do one of two things. They come and say, I've got a good idea. Why don't you do it? I just had someone at the Joy Group say, I've got this book for you to read. It's a kid's book. My 84-year-old friend just did it. I want you to read it and tell me if the kids in the school should have it, and then maybe you can work out a way to buy it for everybody. Now, God bless her, but I don't have time to read the book, and I also don't have time to raise $5,000 to buy the book. So ask your pastor. Don't presume. If you want to know how to help people in the world, come and ask me, and I'll give you some ideas, or I can direct you to people who have good ideas. And this is where, that's just where trusting your pastor comes into play. You've got to trust that I'll point you in the right direction, or the other guys will point you in the right direction, um, and not burn you out. And frankly, I may say to you, how can I help the world? I may say you can help the world by um, making dinner for the next two weeks for your family and have, having everybody sit at the table. That might be the way to start. Final thing is go to the Eucharist, because as someone said a couple weeks ago, how do I get over feeling, you know, thinking about myself? It's the same thing here. The Eucharist, by its very nature, 
forces you to think about someone else, about Christ, about the people across from you, and about the people who are you know, estranged and far off and don't have all the gifts you've got. So in receiving a gift, you then are, are led to think about someone else who may not have the same gift or may not have all the gifts you have, like house, home, shoes, clothing, all those sorts of things. So if the more you come to the Eucharist, the more you're pushed to think about somebody else. And this doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, we're giving $10,000 to Africa and I'm flying over. In fact, I would say that's the last thing you should do. Yeah. Well, I can send you to Africa if you want to go to Africa, but you might also want to think about the fact you have two young boys at home. And like I said to Abby, I was, I was actually had been asked to go to Africa this year just a couple weeks ago, and she said, yeah, you can go, um, and if you drop dead, I'll just raise the kids by myself. Kind of like, yeah, okay, I probably shouldn't go. <laughs> so <laughs> let me go to Leslie. And, uh, do you have something to follow up on this? Go ahead. That's how I feel, Leslie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we said it all throughout the Simply Christian study. The best way to give a witness is to be normal. I mean, that's what it is. Don't, if you're abnormal, people can sniff that a mile away, especially, I think, people of, of your demographic and my demographic. They can, they can smell something that's artificial and fake. So be normal, be real. Um, and say your prayers and have a good drink and have some fun, and people will see that and say, well, she's normal and she goes to church. I wonder what that looks like. Really? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I got some other people you can talk to. <laughs> uh, Rachel, do you have something? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've actually never even heard of it, but it sounded pretty. <laughs> Kathy, you have something? Yeah. V, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, your vocation is not your job. Um, your vocation is your identity. Yeah, it's your identity. It's who you are. And Lutherans have often misunderstood vocation, but that's actually spot on, which is it's not just you don't have a – you're not working full-time, so you don't have a vocation. Your identity is wife and mother at that particular time. And then your identity at another time will be employee and will be pick your thing. Um, so it's who you are in the moment. That's your vocation. And it's always defined Christologically. It's always defined by Jesus, not by you. Maddie, anything? Kirby? <laughs> 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 so, right, so basically the takeaway is be faithful, go to the Eucharist, and realize that it's not just talking about Jesus that gives a witness. It's about being a normal human being and yet being faithful, and faithfulness is defined by your connection to Christ. Eucharist, you know, font, word, church, all those sorts of things, and then just live a good life. Um, and don't be afraid of doing good for other for other people. Um, to be afraid of doing good for other people means at the end of the day you're pretty self-consumed because all you're really thinking about is not doing good for other people, right? So do good, um, and as Jesus says, you know, let your light shine before men, uh, and they'll see your good deeds. They won't hear you talk about Jesus. They'll see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Make sense?
You okay? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. He takes even the struggles and blesses them. And I think I think you have to see uh, our past, you know, 18 months as a chance. I, we can either wallow in our struggles or, or find the blessing in all of it. And part of the blessing, real honestly, is what we've done more than anything else the past 18 months is think about ourselves. Talk about ourselves. Work on ourselves. Guess what? It's time to think about somebody else. So it's almost like a death has occurred, and now you got to move forward and see how the Lord's going to use you. Oh, it's to me, I had lunch with a guy from... Uh, from Wheaton College, or from College Church, very bright guy, and he said, uh, he said, here's the difference. You have all the doctrine, but no life. We have all the life, all the living, but no doctrine. He basically said, how can we work together to figure out living and doctrine at one time? Because, because historically, yeah. Well, we should, and historically, that's the way Lutherans have been, which is a sad thing, but we can't be the same way Lutherans have always been. We've got to move forward. But yeah, people also see it in the community. You know, you got all the good, you got a book of Concord, you put one face down on it, but do you actually live it? That's the question. So, on that happy note, <laughs> here's the thing, it's going to, no, it's going it, to, it's, yeah, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Hang in there, look forward. You know, every time there's a narrow straight, it opens back up, and it's going to get better. It's going to be fine, but you just got to be faithful. And if you're not faithful, be faithful, and if, if that's not for you, then there are other places to go where you might be happier and, and more faithful. But it's all about just being faithful, okay? And here's the thing. If you can't say something nice, take a vow of silence. <laughs> it's true. If, if you're angry, just be silent. Be silent for about three weeks, and you're going to be fine, all right? Just be si- I've got a sticker on my, on my computer that says silence. You've been at the um, Sistine Chapel. They don't let you talk there. Don't let you take flash pictures. And they yell, you know, silencio when you start talking. Silencio, be silent. It's going to be fine. We should probably take a field trip there just to experience that. How many of you want to go to Rome with me? I'll lead the tour. <laughs> now, you all raised your hands. How many of you are willing to pay 2500 bucks to go to Rome? Okay. <laughs> After the wedding's over, exactly. Yeah, free. I wish we could go for free. Okay, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, it's almost Easter. Have fun.